we are two sermons from the end of a series called The Gospel Through the Bible that we've been in for 19 years here at High Point. And um, this morning we're going to be talking about the book of Hosea, which is a book from the 8th century B.C. It's, um, it's about 10 pages long. You can read it in about an hour. Um, you should. That'd be a really good use of an hour if you're a Christian, even if you're not. And um, if, you're, if you're too lazy to do that, I'd really recommend reading the first three chapters because that has the story part, and then that'll be nice. And that's still good. So, um, and if you're a mom or something, and you're like, well, my kids are never going to leave me alone enough to read for an hour— let me, just, let me just tell you what my wife does um, sometimes, and it's, it's very helpful. We got it from a book. It's not like we made this up. She just turns to him. She says, sweetie, you don't need a mommy right now for this, and I'm not going to be one. Right? I thought that's it. Sweetie, you don't need a mommy for this right now, and I'm not going to be one. And then you keep reading. That's it. And you might have to, the first 10 times, they'll look at you confused. And then they'll get it. And if they say, but did mommy, I'm bored, you just say, that's because you're boring. But if you use, <laughs> if you use the, the creativity that God gave you, you'll never be bored. And smile at them, and then keep reading. So it's a little parenting advice that should scar your children forever. Just kidding. You really should do that. It'll really help them. Okay. The last couple weeks, okay, the book of Hosea is a book about God's love, and it is a book about marriage. And marriage is fought over in all kinds of cultures um, and in our nation right now, and it is because it is the most romantic thing that exists. It is enormously important. It is not just about people making families even, which is huge. It is about how we see reality. And the last couple weeks for me has been both inspiring and uninspiring related to marriage. Um, just, I think it was just yesterday, the day before, um, I was talking with a ministry friend and found out that one of the, one of the ministry people I supervised um, in former years just, just ran off with somebody else in that church. You know what? They were at a, another church and just broke up two marriages and we just have to do it. And it was just very frustrating to just hear another story about how adultery wrecks everything in families and people's lives. And it was awful. Um, and, the, and these are all really solidly Christian people. This is why my wife and I always have this rule that in our marriage, you, we're, you're never more than a month away from an affair. I don't care how long you've been married. I don't care how good it's going. You're no more than a month of at least being on trajectory towards one. Which, if you define it that way, you're never more than 10 minutes, right? This, but, but also, I, we, had a really, we had some really inspiring. A couple weeks ago, we got to go to Los Angeles to do a wedding for, um, for Devin and Shane McIntyre, who were over there. And, um, we, and it coincided with Alexi's and my 15th anniversary. So we got to go to Los Angeles and hike around and um, eat sushi. The most important thing was that we left the children at home and got to talk to each other a little bit. And that was really fun. It was fun to like celebrate our 50th, or our 50th, right? <laughs> That's just how long it feels for Alexi. Um, she just kept slipping that out. Um, um, and then to be at a wedding, and, you know, Shane and Devin were so cute and stuff. And um, it kind of got me thinking about, like, you know, just doing weddings. And I was imagining, I was kind of daydreaming this week, about doing a, a wedding for a math major. 
you know, who, because Shane and Devin, the reason why I thought of this, because they wrote their own vows, and I almost never let couples write their own vows, because people write terrible vows that aren't vows when they write their own vows, usually. And so I, my rule is always like, if you want to write vows, you have to submit to my editing process, otherwise it's a no-go. You just get yourself another pastor. I'm not, I'm not going to listen to you not make vows to each other during the vow part of the ceremony, okay? And so I was imagining that, and so that's your average math major, and like, I can imagine one writing his vows and saying, Isabel, sweetheart, I love you 10 to the 8 to the 100th power, and there are only 10 to the 80th power subatomic particles in the universe, right? To which I would then say, if we were discussing this in my office, are you sure you want to lead with that? Like, are, are you sure that in the moment she's going to come up in the dress, she's going to be your bride, and you're going to want to say something to her that's really going to move her, and are you sure that you want to lead with math? And to which I could imagine the math major saying something like, Nick, I'm telling her I love her 10 to the 100th. There's only 10 to the 80th subatomic powers in the whole— I mean, if she's not happy with that, I'm not sure I even want to marry this girl. I mean, she can't be pleased. Right? Um, as opposed to that, here are the actual vows from Shane and Devin's wedding. And let me read a little bit of, of Shane's for you. I make these vows to you before God— that you and all here, to you and all here, that they would come with no conditions, no contingencies, and because God has never ceased in keeping his promises to us, I vow a covenantal love to you in this marriage. I promise to protect and provide for you and for your true good, no matter the personal cost, as Christ did for his bride, the church. I promise to lay down my life for you and like the unfailing and unceasing covenantal love of God has, that he has shown us throughout time, I vow to love you in all moments of life, the hard and the simple, the heavy and the light, the sorrowful and the joyous, in security, in success and failure, through prolonged illness or complete health. I vow to make you my queen, to hold you alone as my wife in honor, and to give you my trust, my respect, and my compassion. And on it goes. <laughs> Just kidding. Now, which is the better vow? Right? Well, technically, I mean, it depends on how you look at it, right? I mean, technically, this, 10 to the 100th, I mean, at one level, that's better, right? I mean, it, it, it's more than there are subatomic particles in the universe. But how many women were thinking, when I put that set up, oh, if some man would just say that to me. <laughs> yeah, not very many, right? Um, one of the things that Shane and Devin knew when I preached, um, it's, it, when I do weddings, um, me preaching a sermon part is optional, and I usually preach on the verse that the, the husband and wife, the group, bride and groom, give me. And Devin was kind of bold. She picked Hosea 2, 18 to 20, right? Which says this, In that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. And then this is the verse that she chose. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. 
Now, it's really easy to read over that sentimentally. When we read over that, we don't pay attention to the words that he used, and what we take from it is, he's going to seriously betroth us. Right? All those words, instead of understanding their particulars, we just think of them all as amplifiers, right? And they're like, oh, he's going to, like, all that's parallelism, it's all poetry, he's just going to really, really betroth us. That's not what he's saying. He's very specifically talking about the character of the betrothal and marriage that he will have with those who are his bride. And the preposition in is very important here. He will betroth us in. That is, the character of our betrothal and marriage will have, and the first two characteristics he gives is not gushy love and and kind feelings. I will betroth you, he says, in righteousness— And in justice. When was the last time you heard that in a wedding ceremony, right? I will—our marriage will be built upon righteousness and justice. But he doesn't stop there. That wouldn't be a great vow, would it? And in love and compassion. That's it. That's the whole book of Hosea right there. But it gets a lot more pictorial. And and here's why I think that's important. I think that there is a reason why the Bible doesn't ever say anywhere that God's love is unconditional. I think there's two main reasons for that. The one is because it's not true. Now, let me explain that for like 30 seconds before everybody flips out. Um, besides, I say this a lot, so it shouldn't be too big a surprise to me. But what, I'm not saying that love's, God's outgoing loving invitation to humanity isn't unconditional. There are certain ways, there are certain ways God's love is unconditional. He gives good to all people. Creates the earth, everybody gets sun, everybody gets rain. Everybody gets some of God's blessing in the world. That, and that, that, his creative, common grace, love, that's universal, that's unconditional. He gives it to everybody, right? His invitational love, him saying to you, come in. Right? Christ has died for you. You can have a relationship with me forever. I, I want that with you. It's your, it's what you were made for. That's, that's unconditional, right? There's no condition we have to meet to receive the invitation. Right? But to accept the invitation, there's only one condition, but it's one that he doesn't back down on ever, 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 ever. And it's a real condition. It's the condition of faith, trusting in God, repenting of other things to trust in, and trusting in him. God's love is not in that sense unconditional. It's false. But there's actually, I think, a bigger reason. And that is that it doesn't do anything for you. To say, I mean, think about this. Think about the age you were the first time somebody explained to you the mathematical concept of infinity, right? Now think about that for just a second. You should have fainted. Right? Right. There's some value that's nothing can be bigger than it. So you can take infinity plus infinity. It's not more than infinity. It's like— you should have started bleeding out of your ears, and then you should have passed out. You did! Well, great. You're the most emotionally healthy person here. Okay, so, but we didn't, right? That didn't happen to you. You went, you kind of went, you might have cocked your head to the side a little bit. Huh, that's kind of weird. And then you went about your, went about your day. It didn't destroy you. Why? Because math just doesn't do that to us. Math is accurate, but it's not exploding. It doesn't make the heart sing. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything for us. 
No woman comes up to the altar and wants you to read her an equation. It just, it just doesn't seem to work that way. And so, in, and so instead of giving us math, God gives us Hosea. He gives us a man who is mostly minding his own business when God says, I want you to go and I want you to marry just the sluttiest woman you can find. And I want you to marry her and I want you to have children with her and I want you to love her and I want to create that so that she can spit in your face and rip out your heart and stomp on it and destroy her life ruin your children, and make your life a living hell. Because I want people to understand what it means for me to love them. I want people to understand what they are like to love and what it's like for me to love them. That is, instead of giving us math, God gives us a a picture that his love is like the love of a furious and devoted husband. So there's two misunderstandings. Oh, sorry. Let me do this because I think this is helpful. The reason for this, this is the second reason why, why I think God gives us a picture rather than, is God's love will matter to you to the extent to which it is in relief to something else that demonstrates its real size. One of the things that is, is a falsehood of the technological age are screensavers, right? Like, like if you get, a, if you get like a, a, a wallpaper app, there's like 9,000 landscape wallpapers, right? Of like pretty pictures. It's just like three less than there are Hollywood women in the app probably, right? And they're all pictures of really beautiful nature scenes, yeah? Totally false. That's not what those things look like. Now, if you're trying to get through a 19-month Wisconsin winter, then putting a picture of something green on your phone does help, and I encourage you to do that. It is a useful lie, okay? But the picture itself doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't create any real sense of scale, right? And so one of the best examples of this is most people have seen a picture of El Capitan from Yosemite. This. Right? It's like one of the biggest pieces of granite in America. And it's amazing, and it's huge, and you can tell people it's huge, and you look on it, and you can see the trees, and you're like, that looks pretty big. And you have no idea how big it is. In fact, um, park rangers will tell you that when people drive up to El Capitan on the road that goes through Yosemite, the most predictable thing that people will say the minute they get out of their cars, they'll say this, I knew it was big. I had no idea it was this big, right? And here's the thing. When you have that experience, I've had that experience. When you have it, you get out and you feel that way. You're like, this is so much bigger than I thought it was. You still don't have any idea how big it is because it's still like a mile away. The thing that finally lets you have some kind of conception about how big it is is when somebody nearby hands you their binoculars. And you, you take the binoculars and you're looking at El Cap and you see, and you still, it's like they're, they're eight or ten magnification binoculars, and you can see this tiny speck of like red on there. And you go, what's that tiny speck of red? And the ranger says, it's the tent of a party of four climbers, nine pitches up the 12 pitch climb. And you, all of a sudden the scale starts to dawn on you that like, okay, I can, that little tiny speck I can barely see is four people. 
this is so, this is so much bigger. That's the point of Hosea. To give us a sense of scale. Loving a woman like Hosea's wife, like Gomer, a woman who destroys everything, she, overcoming that out of love, she is the speck on the wall of the El Capitan of God's love for humanity. It is our sin. It is the wrath that we deserve. It is our unspeakable shame that God overcomes that puts some scale to the amount of love that God has. So there's two misunderstandings we have to get past. The first is what it's like for God to love us and what it's like to be loved by God. And so, sorry, that was pointing to climbers that you couldn't see. The first is that one of the things we just have to get a hold of is that what God is saying in the book of Hosea is that loving us is like loving a prostitute wife. The problem with the word prostitute is that it doesn't really cover it. Um, the focus of the word um, in the text is on promiscuity. That the woman he's called to marry is a woman of sort of rampant, unwallable promiscuity. What, what, what modern slang would call it a slut. So it's an adulteress. I don't care about the bounds of right living. I'll do whatever I want in promiscuity. It's like it's the whole thing. And that is, that is the, Gomer, the woman he marries, is the picture of Israel, and Israel is the picture of humanity in the Bible. So what is true of Gomer is true of Israel, and because, Israel, because, because Jews are not worse than us, they are typical humans, what's true of Israel then is true of us. Right? Okay, wrong button. Here we go. Now, it's easy to think that the problem with Gomer is just that, like, she's a little loose around the edges. And that is a misunderstanding of human character. There are a lot of people that believe you can have a personal flaw, a moral problem in your virtues, and it's isolated. The problem is, is that that's not true. There is no isolation to human virtue. They are all connected to each other completely so that if you have a issue in human virtue, you will have ultimately an issue in all the human virtues. So this is a dramatically oversimplified example. But for example, if you don't have patience, the virtue of patience, you cannot exhibit the virtue of tolerance because tolerance requires it. Right? If you don't have patience, everybody will annoy you. You can't tolerate about them what annoys you. You can't be tolerant. Tolerance is required for friendship because nobody is just like you. If you love your neighbor, if you love the people around you, if you try to be friend, if, to exert the virtue of friendliness, you're going to exert the virtue of friendliness to people that are vastly unlikely, which means to be a friend, you have to tolerate. But you can't tolerate because you're not patient. So you can't be a friend. When friendliness breaks down, so does candor. You can't speak truthfully to each other because candor is broken down, because friendship doesn't exist, because tolerance can't be supported by patience. And so friendship, honesty breaks down, but when honesty breaks down, you can't talk about justice because nobody's telling the truth. Justice is the rejection that the world is about power. Instead, it's about truth, what's right and wrong, rather than what you can do. Justice is, it doesn't matter what you can do, what must you do that's related to the truth in which you need honesty to even talk about that. People are dishonest, 
to bring power over truth. That's what dishonesty does. And so it breaks down. Without honesty, there isn't justice. Justice is the most fundamental human act of love. It's respecting the freedom and character of another person. Without justice, there is no love. Without love, there is no patience. And on and on it goes. And yet the web of the virtues is much tighter than that, much more intricate than that. And so when he has to go marry Gomer, he's not just marrying a woman who's super nice all the time and then just, whoops, you're not my husband. How did I get in this bed? That's not what he marries. And the book of Hosea, sorry, goes on about this as you read the rest of the chapters. Right? It says in, in chapter 9, At Baal Peor they consecrated themselves to that shameful idol and became as vile as the thing that they loved. That is, the, the Baal of Peor, Baal is just Hebrew for Lord, right? And the Baal of Peor was a god of fertility, right? And if you live in an agrarian culture, fertility is everything, right? Fertility is what makes the barley grow and the wheat grow and the lambs have babies and the cows have babies and it's your wealth, it's your health, it's your everything. And this is apparently the god of the region and he's the god of fertility, so we should worship him. Notice how consecrate and covenant are very similar words. They showed up and they set their love on the Baal of Peor, on this idol, on this god that wasn't a real god, and they gave themselves to it. They consecrated. And here's the thing about loving someone. And this is one of the reasons why it's not morally neutral who you love. Because you always become like what you love. And that doesn't change when that's a person. When you love a person and you consecrate yourself to love another person, you are going to become a lot like them. In marriage, you become like each other. Hopefully you become more like Christ. So as you become more like each other, that's a good thing. And so when they chose to set their love on this God, they didn't just commit spiritual adultery. They, became, they chose to increasingly become like the God that they put their affection on. And that's true of everything that you and I turn to. Everything that we rely on, turn to, hope in, trust in, act toward— to provide for us, to provide security for us, to provide leisure for us, to provide hope for us, to provide anything for us, we are going to become like that thing. And so you and I need to pay very close attention to the moral character of everything we bind ourselves to because it will determine ours in relatively short order. And so there's this progression that, that the book of Hosea goes through of the degradation. And this is important because this is the bride that God chooses to continue to go after. Right? So there's this, there's all the way through the book of the Hades, there's this slow rot to humanity. One is that w the minute we consecrate ourselves to an idol, that's, that's to trust in anything but God. It's to be idolatry in the Old Testament. There's this shallowness, this vacuousness, or I invented this word, twittery. That is the state of being a twit, not of tweeting too much. That we just, it, it, it not only hollows out, but it shallows out human persons. We become just kind of twits, kind of shallow, sort of useless. We're, we have no real depth. It says in Hosea 3, 1, though they turn to other gods and love their sacred raisin cakes, which is the verse that you probably have in your fridge. All right, the sacred raisin cakes. Okay, well, they live in a world before processed sugars. So the sugars that are used are going to be stuff that's, that are naturally existing, which are going to be two main things in this culture, dates and raisins, right? So a raisin cake is their sweets. Right? So it's kind of like saying, it's like they worship foreign idols, they do whatever they want, and they sit around and they eat sweets. That is, they're addicted to delicacy. Right? That's like—now, 
you and I will not connect with this at all, okay? There's some other group of people this might apply to, but it would be kind of like people who like went from watching television to going on vacation to eating at nice restaurants to eating sweets to doing whatever they like to do and went from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing that they like to do and as much as possible they made sure their life consisted in those things. You probably can't identify with that at all. That's what that verse ultimately means. They just love, they just love their sacred raisin cakes. You can use that in parenting. Sweetie, is your just life just all about sacred raisin cakes? I mean, honestly. Right? There's a vacuousness to us. There's also what we used to call in Florida the meth effect. I know this is kind of nasty, but in the panhandle right when I was doing ministry there, meth was like really infecting things. And what would happen to people is they'd, they'd get on this drug and it would destroy their bodies. And they wouldn't really realize it. And one day they would wake up and they would look in the mirror and they'd see a person who's, you know, a woman who's 24 with half her teeth and she looks like a skeleton and she says, how does this happen to me? And it's because it was rotting you from the inside out and you couldn't even see it. And idolatry does that to you. And it's not just that it kills you, it is such an offense to the alternative. Right? When you kill yourself, you're saying to the people who love you, I would rather kill myself than let you help me. It's, it's, it's horrifying. And, and that's what this verse says. He says, foreigners sap his strength, and he does not realize it. Speaking of Israel, his hair is sprinkled with gray, but he doesn't know what it says. He, he's putting himself in a situation where he's, he's feeling weak, and he doesn't know why he's feeling weak. His hair is turning gray. He's prematurely aging, and he doesn't even really know why. He doesn't pay any attention to it, but it's the foreigners that he's putting in trust instead of God. It's, it's what he's doing to himself. It's, there's a meth effect. There's a false concealment. Have you ever had, like, somebody at work that— there were these two people and they were like clearly moving towards like dating or whatever and they thought that nobody else knew. And then they come in one day and they're like, we're dating. And you're like, um, yeah, we know. What did you call what you were doing before? Right? And there's this point where God says, but they do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sin engulfs them and they're always before me. Right? It's like the kid who like is trying to sneak in the kitchen to get candy and it's so obvious to you and you're like, Sweetie, just because you're going to the kitchen squatting behind the dog doesn't mean I don't see you. And I'm just going to tell you that's a little suspicious. Right? Because, but there's this sense in our idolatry that we don't—people don't see us. It's like we're walking around and, they, oh, they can't see me do this. And, and it's, it's a mental effect of the degradation of a sin and idolatry. There's a misjudgment of character. There's this point where God says, I'm going to strip all this stuff away— and I'm going to show her for what she is. And here's why. Because she thinks that her lovers gave her all this stuff. So God gives her everything. He turns her into this beautiful, healthy, vibrant woman. She goes out in public, and these strip joint chumps see her beautified by her husband, and they come after her, and she gets involved in an affair with them, and after a while, she's like, oh yeah, they gave me all this stuff. It's delusional, but it is normal, idolatrous humanity. And then there's the unreliability where she's just like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna run after my lovers. And that, you know what? That would be enough probably to be like, you know what? This relationship has probably gone as far as it can go. But that is not it. Because around the slow rot of that inner adulterous idolatry, to be— to, once, once you're living in that, you need to feel safe. And so you need a shell to protect you. 
And as Hosea comes on, goes on, it's clear that there's this, there's this defensive shell that's growing more and more wicked that will be put around it. And one of the first is religious inversion. That is, a lot of people think that religion causes self-righteousness, which causes people to live hatefully and meanly, whatever. Listen, it was not Voltaire or Foucault or, or Nietzsche that was the first to criticize self-righteous religion. It was God. God is the one who said, you've given yourself to this thing, and now you're so desperate to protect it. You, you're going to take something that you know is noble, and you're going to find a way to place that in front of your sin so that you can protect it. And so you're going to invert everything that's good and true about what I've created so that you can, as a shield, you're going to basically use it as a human shield for your sin so that nobody can come after you. Right? I mean, think, think about this in the context to his accusation of adultery. He says, though Ephraim may build altars for sin offerings, they have become altars for sinning. Think about how, think about the implication of that within the context of this is adultery. You build an altar to make a sacrifice if you're repentant for a sexual sin, but instead this has become a sturdy platform on which to do your sinning. It's the new kitchen table that has to be christened. I mean, that's pretty nasty. But that's exactly what he says their religion was like. And then a veiled brutality, that there's a sense that they're nice people. We're nice people. We kiss and we hug and we're nice. And he's like, actually, there's a thin veil over immense brutality. He says, for now they sin more and more and they make idols for themselves from the silver cleverly fashioned into images, all of them the work of craftsmen. And then he says this. Now he's, he's saying it's said about that, meaning the other pagan peoples who are themselves idolaters see how rotten this is, and they make fun of it. And this is what they say. It is said of these people, the Israelites, they offer human sacrifices and kiss the calf idols. Think about that verse. You're supposed to kiss your baby, Right? You're supposed to kiss and hug and love your children. You're supposed to eat cows, okay? And they have so twisted this. They're, they're so full of brutality in their willingness to hold on to the soul raw of their adulterous idolatry that they have so inverted reality that they sacrifice the child and they kiss the idol. Um, I'm not going to spend 25 minutes right now talking about all of the idolatrous things we sacrifice our children to in addition to abortion, but I could. And it would be, we'd be here quite a while, quite a long while, right? Um, and then, and then lastly is false credit, where they, where we say, you didn't give me this. Wait a second, you can't tell me what to do. You didn't give me this. So when the husband says, listen, you're not driving that car I gave you down to that strip club so you can pick up some other guy. You can find another way to get there. And she goes, you didn't give me this car. They gave me this car. Well, I got a check stub right here that says I paid for it. There's this part of the combativeness is, I don't owe you anything. You didn't do this for me. You can't tell me what to do. You don't have a dog in this fight. That's part of the shell. And now listen, now you're like, I mean, honestly, Nick, did we have to go through all that? And then in the end, if you follow the path of Gomer, by the time you get to chapter three, she's so degraded that she's actually in flesh slavery. Because when he married her, he didn't pay a dime. He's married her, right? 
By the time you get to chapter 3, he's mortgaging his house to try to pay, to buy her back for whatever she's gotten herself into. Now, now why did I just spend 15 or 20 minutes on that? And here's why. Have you ever heard of a husband going after a wife like that? Have you ever even heard of such a thing? I mean, you would— If you weren't at church, and you were just in the coffee room or by the water cooler or out to coffee with somebody, and they laid that out for you, that that's what their spouse is like, I would just about guarantee you, you would say just about the exact same thing anybody in this city would say, and that is you need to divorce that person as fast as possible. You need to get the best lawyer you can find. You should take them for everything that they're worth. I mean, you need to get out. And listen— I'm not actually saying that that would be necessarily bad advice. Because in the Bible, when spouses commit adultery, it is up to the offended spouse to to choose what to do. They may leave or they may stay, and it is up to them. And you see, in this case, God chooses to stick with it somehow. And Here's why that's important. That's insane. Why would anyone do that? I mean, how much punishment should somebody take? And how much hope is there that this kind of woman's going to change? There's no hope that this kind of woman's going to change. I mean, she didn't just go, oops, she's not this little floozy that if if you move out to rural Kansas, there won't be enough guys around and you can make the thing work. I mean, this is a woman who goes out looking for the lewdest thing possible. And you get to chapter three, and God shows up to Hosea, and he says, what does he say? He goes, go find her, Hosea. Why? (laughs) Because you're— You have to love her the way I have loved the Israelites, or the way I've loved humanity. You see, that's what ought to put God's love in relief for us. All of that degradation, all of that personal destruction, the the self-loathing, the self-destruction, the meth effect, the you didn't give me this, I hate your guts, the shell, the— I will sacrifice your children to get what I want. You can't tell me what to do. Get away from me. Screaming, cutting her own flesh. Don't touch me. And he doesn't give up. That is what puts the love of God in relief, not math. It's true. Ten to the hundredth. It's true. But you don't feel it until you see Hosea going after Gomer. And you realize it's you. It's you. It's me. I am like that. You are like that. And the reason we don't see it is because we won't see it. The shell is thick, and we don't see the gray hairs, and we don't pay attention to the weakening, and we say, they gave me this, not you. I worked hard. That company took me forward. My life is going well because I make good decisions and I manage things well. It wasn't your good providence and your good freedom and your good health and everything that you've given to me that's made me do this. I have achieved this. It was given to me by my lovers. And he, and he ought to throw us in the garbage and say, good riddance. 
And he says to Hosea, go find her. And there's only one reason that that happens. And it's when the groom cares more about what she is doing to herself than what she is doing to him. And there's not one man in a million like that. And there's one out of one God like that. And that has to come home to roost. For us to be saved, for us to know how to be fathers and know how to be wives and husbands and daughters and men and women and Christians, you've got to see the relief. You've got to see that, and you've got to see how, how ugly it is, and you've got to see that as this speck on the El Capitan of the love of God. When he says, Jose, you go find her. Right? And then the second thing is being loved by God is like being loved by a furious, and I mean that in the anger sense, and devoted husband. It is very difficult for us to connect with this because we live in such an emasculated culture. We just have no idea what masculinity is about. We just don't have any idea. Even the men who are like, feel like we're men, it's, it's really hard to even conceive of the thing. Um, gender is so confused for everybody. And it's just really hard to connect with any of this. And you look at the book of Hosea, and here's, here's how you know this is the case. You read what this book says, and it'll just about, if you let yourself feel it and picture it, it'll just about make you throw up. Because here's how God loves Gomer and Israel and us. He inflicts upon her the most horrifyingly painful and humiliating chastisement you can imagine. He, uh, he lays this out in chapter 2. When it says, rebuke your mother, he's talking to the present generation of Israelites, and their mother is the generations that have gone before them. That's the metaphor here. He's saying the generations that got before you is your mother, and you are the daughter, right? In this, in this rebuke your mother, rebuke, for, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. That is, she's, she's done, she can't repent anymore. She's dead. His marriage will be based on, remember, I will betroth you in righteousness and injustice. That divorce is final. We'll talk about divorce next week when we talk about Malachi. It'll be just as bad as this, okay? And we'll, and we'll be, we'll know something about the love of God when we're done. It'll be great. See, she, that divorce is final. I can't save her. But, but you, you can rebuke her. You can turn away from what she did, right? He says this, I better let her remove, and, and just, just let how crass this is settle on you. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Now, listen to verse 3. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. 
I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes and wall her in so she cannot find her way. And she will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. And then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Now many people will read this and they'll go, see, God will wall her in so she can't get to her lovers. And then she'll say, I'll go back to my husband and see, she'll repent and he'll restore. And in many greeting cards, and this is a statement saying, see, this is what restoration, I'll go back to my husband. That's not as far as I can tell what this passage is saying. What this passage is saying, as far as I can tell is, she will say this and it is not enough. It is not enough. She will come to this point, and this is not repentance. This is, I'm not getting enough for my sugar daddy. My husband gave me a little more, so for now, I'll go back to him as long as the, the weight of finances are in his favor. So I'll go over, and he goes, she'll say that, and it will not be enough, and I will keep stripping her down. Because look, look what says right after. I was better off than now. And then verse 6, she has not acknowledged— she has not acknowledged that I was the one that gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it's ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers, and no one will take her out of my hands either to save her or, or anything. Now, that ought to be really difficult. And that's, that's partly because um, of a good instinct in us and a very confused one in us both. So let me, let me contrast with a story. Um, I, as I was researching, there's a, there's a short film that was done by a church in Los Angeles called Oversold, which is supposed to be like a modern-day um, Jose, and it didn't get great reviews, but the girl that they cast as Gomer is a girl named Chrissy Morin, who's apparently a former porn star and come to Christ and so on. And there's a YouTube video of her and this other girl who's an ex-stripper sitting down with a pastor and talking about what casual sex does to people's humanity. And they, they tell a lot of their story, and when Chrissy's telling her story, she talks about um, being in like a three-year relationship with a guy when she was in the business, and she, he just beat, the, just beat the stew out of her, just told her every day, that she was going to going to love her. She wasn't going to be worth anything. She was never enough for him. She always found out, she's like, I always found it ironic that she was, that he was living with a porn star and had to watch porn every day. And she said it was just, and I, but I just, I was, I stayed. I don't know why until finally I, finally I left. And you, you can, you and I cannot understand, we cannot understand the love of God until we can make a distinction between these two things. As long as we live in this sense of passivity and pacifism where our culture says to us, there is no kind of violence that is good. Violence is violence, and violence is by definition. All use of force is violence, and all violence is bad. That is not true. It's not true. If you kill somebody because you want to kill them, that's bad violence. That's called murder, right? If you kill somebody to save somebody else's life because the person you had to kill was intent on killing the other person, that's called beauty, justice, righteousness, goodness. That's called mercy. 
As Chesterton said, the soldier kills the man in front of him, not because he hates the man in front of him, because he rightly loves the woman behind him, or the man behind him. This idea that to raise our hand in any way is fundamentally wrong is an emasculation of our entire race of people of both genders. And it confuses the heck out of men. The reason why the guy that Chrissy was living with should have himself been beaten to death by a guy worth his salt is because he, he was not executing justice. He was in no position of authority to do such a thing. He was not doing it for her good or for the good of justice itself. There was no legitimacy. She didn't deserve it. He deserved much worse, and he had no right to dole it out. And somebody should have used violence on him to protect her. The difference here is, as difficult as that is to read in here, it was far less than she deserved. Exodus is really clear. The biblical cost for adultery for either gender was stoning. It was death, straight up. He chose abject and total humiliation. Now you can say that's cruel, but you see, his intervention was not the sort of one that like you read about or you see in like funny YouTube videos where everybody sits around and be like, Billy, everybody who's here loves you. Aunt Sarah loves you. Uncle John loves you. I love you. And what you're doing, it's going to hurt you. And we really want you to come out of that. Now listen, I joke about that. That's actually really good. Like if your if a counselor tells you to do that, you do it. You do it as nicely as possible. You do anything you can to help somebody. But you see, in this case, What, what she deserves and what she needs are actually the same thing. And in the execution of justice that is entirely just, but also quite lenient, God is doing two things. It's a judicial intervention. It's judicial. She deserves everything she gets. And if it destroys her, so much the better. She deserves to be destroyed. It is what it is. But it might save her. It might. It might save her. She might get all the way down to the bottom, and you may strip her naked in front of her lovers, and she may turn to you and spit in your face and say, I hate you, and storm off and die somewhere. She might do that. It's totally—it's probably likely. It's probably likely. Or she might realize reality. It, I mean, reality might come home to roost. She might realize that they were just using her. Right? I mean, a lewd woman can cover up what she wants and show what she wants to allure in even people who will use her. But when she's stripped naked, she just is what she is and she has nothing. And when she has nothing, all of these lovers, as she called them, they're shown for what they are. They're just, they're just using her. It's like, the, it's like the dad yelling at her teenage daughter, don't, don't you understand what he wants? Don't you see what he's here for? Your mom and I, we've invested 17 years in you. You are beautiful and wonderful. He just wants to taste you. That's it. That's all he wants from you. He wants to take what God has given you, what we've given you. He just wants to taste it. He wants to spit on it, and he wants to leave it. He wants to go taste something else. Don't you see it? She's using you. 
And you see, it's not until she is as naked as the day she was born. That, and he withdraws himself, and she has nothing, and they leave her, and she is destitute, and she is, as Gomer literally was, in sex, in slavery. She's nothing. That she can either receive what she deserves, or she can come to herself, and she can say, I was wrong. And you see, right after that, you know what it says in chapter 2? Right when he gets done saying, this is what I'm going to do to you. The very next verse says, and then I will allure her. I will take her out into the desert, and I will speak tenderly to her. You see, the intervention was for her good. The hope is, is that she would turn. If she doesn't, then she lays herself in the hands of justice. If she does, then she's redeemed. If you um, go through the book of Hosea, God's tender love, his graciousness, his compassion is really powerful. In chapter one, think about just the very first thing God says. He says, he says Hosea, go and find a woman who is wildly promiscuous and marry her. Think about that. What does that mean? It means that God's action to redeem and save comes long before anything we've ever dreamed of. God is always the initiator. He sends Hosea out after her, knowing he's going to fail, because he gives a promise that she doesn't deserve and that she can't even live up to. But he gives it. Then chapter 2, he strips her down bare, but then he allures her and he tries to bring her back. And then when you get to chapter 3, this is how chapter 3 starts. He says, and this is the last we hear of their relationship, right? The rest is all about Israel and God. He says, then the Lord said to me, that's Hosea, go, Show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love their sacred raisin cakes. And then it says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a leketh, a lethek of barley. Then I told her, You're to live with me for many days, and you must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you couple things in the context of that is um, a number of commentators have said that this payment is kind of odd. Normally when you would buy a slave, you'd just pay cash. It's 30 pieces of silver. It's something. This is kind of strange. A number of the commentators say it demonstrates probably two things. One is it probably demonstrates that there was haggling that was done about the price. And two, it's probably everything Hosea has. It's just, it's a weird number to settle up. And, and, and they say, it's, it's probably—and it's a su substantial sum. And, he's, and he, they say, you know, this is probably what he had. He probably went and mortgaged everything, and he went, and he haggled him down to what he had, and then he just paid it. And then he brought her home, and he didn't just say, well, sweetie, here we are. He I mean, he said, okay, listen, did it happen yet? Can, we, can I make an honest woman out of you? Did you, did you learn? You can't be a prostitute anymore. Do you, do, you see, do you see how that goes back to chapter 2 when God said, I will betroth you. And now in chapter 2, that's after all the stripping naked. It's after that. He says, I will betroth you. I will betroth you in justice and in righteousness and in love and in compassion. Do you see how both are present there? 
yeah, it's, it's, it's righteousness and it's justice. And it doesn't end with him backing down that. He says, listen, I've done all this saving. Now listen, you are going to have to not do that anymore. You can't be a prostitute anymore. But listen, even that is an action of grace. If, if we are Gomer, don't you want to be different? Don't you want to be changed? Don't you, don't you want to not be that person anymore? And that's what God has done. And that's, isn't that the gospel? I mean, he says, listen, go find them. She's never going to find you. <laughs> the, the humans are never going to come to us. We're going to have to go to them. So God in the person of his son goes to the humans. And he pays everything he's got to buy them back from the slavery they have degraded themselves into. There's nothing of the relationship to save other than that the husband cares more about what the wife is doing to herself than what it will cost him to save her. And then when he saves her out of it, he doesn't just let her go back into it. He, he seeks to change her with the love and the chastisement that he used to draw her in the first place. If you see that, you will be horrified by sin. I mean, you'll look, you'll look at yourself and you'll be like, oh my gosh, I am Gomer. And it will be a very, very ugly sight. And then you will turn to see Jesus. And so enormous will his love loom over you that your sin will still remain and it will be embarrassing. And yet it will be a speck on the backdrop of the mountain-sized love of God. It's 10 to the hundredth, but that wouldn't have ever done anything to you or for you if he hadn't have been a furious and compassionate husband to an adulterous bride. The book of Hosea ends in chapter 14. I would go, go this afternoon and read it. It ends with a choice. The whole book ends with, so come, so come to me. So give that up and return to me and and say, I want you, not my idols. And, and he says, and, and, then I, and then I will give myself to you. You see, it ends with, the whole book of Hosea is about what are we going to be? Wh- how will we respond to the love and the chastisement? What choice will we make? Can God make an honest woman out of us? Will we respond either to the pain or the love or the combination of the both of them? What will that do to affect us? And then if it does affect us, do you know what Jesus told us to do? Remember he said, love one another as. You know, it's the prepositions that are the most dangerous words in the Bible, aren't they? Love each other as I have loved you. Let's pray. Father, um, we just pray, we simply pray that this would do something to us, that, you, that the, wor- the word of, that comes from you in the book of Hosea would do something to us. Help the, the love story between Hosea and Gomer to, to mean something to us, to show us what you're like, to help us understand, and to change us from the inside out. We pray that, that we would be so, so driven by and taken with your love that we would, we would want nothing more than to put you in the place that you deserve 
and to put away all of our, all the things we worship, all the things we look to, all of our other hopes that we would hope in you and you only. And we pray that you would write a love story between us that would have a great, a true and great ending because we give ourselves to the true and greater Hosea, Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.